0: Chapter 11 of A Daughter of the Snows by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Don W. Jenkins. Chapter 11. Over in the corner, Vance Corliss leaned against the piano, deep in conversation with Colonel Trethaway. The latter, keen and sharp and wiry for all his white hair and sixty odd years, was as young in appearance as a man of thirty a general mining engineer with a record which put him at the head of his profession he represented as large american interests as corliss did british not only had a cordial friendship sprung up between them but in a business way they had already been of large assistance to each other and it was well that they should stand together a pair who held in grip and could direct at will the potent capital which two nations had contributed to the development of the land under the pole The crowded room was thick with tobacco smoke. A hundred men or so, garbed in furs and warm-coloured wools, lined the walls and looked on. But the mumble of their general conversation destroyed the spectacular feature of the scene and gave to it the geniality of common comradeship. For all its bizarre appearance, it was very like the living-room of the home when the members of the household come together after the work of the day, kerosene lamps and tallow candles glimmered feebly in the murky atmosphere, while large stoves roared their red-hot and white-hot cheer. On the floor a score of couples pulsed rhythmically to the swinging waltz-time music. Starched shirts and frock-coats were not. The men wore their wolf- and beaver-skin caps with the gay-tasseled ear-flaps flying free while on their feet were the moose-skin moccasins and walrus-hide muckluks of the north. Here and there a woman was in moccasins, though the majority danced in frail ballroom slippers of silken satin. At one end of the hall a great open doorway gave glimpse of another large room where the crowd was even denser. From this room, in the lulls and the music, came the pop of corks and the clink of glasses, and as an undertone the steady click and clatter of chips and roulette balls. The small door at the rear opened, and a woman, deferred and muffled, came in on a wave of frost. The cold rushed in with her to the warmth, taking form in a misty cloud which hung close to the floor, hiding the feet of the dancers, and writhing and twisting until vanquished by the heat. "'A veritable frost, queen, my Lucille,' Colonel Trethaway addressed her. She tossed her head and laughed, and as she moved her capes and street moccasins chatted with him gaily. But of Corliss, though he stood within a yard of her, she took no notice. Half a dozen dancing men were waiting patiently at a little distance till she should have done with the colonel. The piano and violin played the opening bars of a shottish, and she turned to go. But a sudden impulse made Corliss step up to her. It was wholly unpremeditated. He had not dreamed of doing it. "'I am very sorry,' he said. Her eyes flashed angrily as she turned upon him. "'I mean it,' he repeated, holding out his hand. "'I am very sorry. I was a brute and a coward. Will you forgive me?' She hesitated, and, with the wisdom bought of experience, searched him for the ulterior motive. Then her face softened, and she took his hand. A warm mist dimmed her eyes." "'Thank you,' she said. But the waiting men had grown impatient, and she was whirled away in the arms of a handsome young fellow, conspicuous in a cap of yellow Siberian wolfskin. Corliss came back to his companion, feeling unaccountably good, and marvelling at what he had done. "'It's a damn shame,' the Colonel's eye still followed Lucille, and Vance understood. "'Corliss, I've lived my three-score, and lived them well. And do you know, woman is a greater mystery than ever.' look at them look at them all he embraced the whole scene with his eyes butterflies bits of light and song and laughter dancing dancing down the last tail reach of hell not only lucille but the rest of them look at may there with the brow of a madonna and the tongue of a gutter devil and myrtle for all the world one of gainsborough's old english beauties stepped down from the canvas to riot out the century in dawson's dance halls and laura there wouldn't she make a mother can't you see the child and the curve of her arm against her breast they're the best of the boiling i know a new country always gathers the best but there's something wrong corliss something wrong the heats of life have passed with me and my vision is truer surer it seems a new christ must arise and preach a new salvation economic or sociologic in these latter days it matters not so long as it is preached the world has need of it The room was wont to be swept by sudden tides, and notably between the dances, when the revelers ebbed through the great doorway to where corks popped and glasses tinkled. Colonel Trethaway and Corliss followed out on the next ebb to the bar, where fifty men and women were lined up. They found themselves next to Lucille and the fellow in the yellow wolfskin cap. He was undeniably handsome, and his looks were enhanced by a warm overplus of blood in the cheeks and a certain mellow fire in the eyes. He was not technically drunk, for he had himself in perfect physical control. But his was the sole exhilaration which comes of the juice of the grape. His voice was raised the least bit and joyous, and his tongue made quick and witty, just in the unstable condition when vices and virtues are prone to extravagant expression. As he raised his glass, the man next to him accidentally jostled his arm. He shook the wine from his sleeve and spoke his mind. It was not a nice word, but one customarily calculated to rouse the fighting blood. And the other man's blood roused, for his fist landed under the wolfskin cap with force sufficient to drive its owner back against Corliss. The insulted man followed up his attack swiftly. The women slipped away, leaving a free field for the men, some of whom were for crowding in and some for giving room and fair play the wolfskin cap did not put up a fight or try to meet the wrath he had invoked but with his hands shielding his face strove to retreat the crowd called upon him to stand up and fight he nerved himself to the attempt but weakened as the man closed in on him and dodged away let him alone. he deserves it the colonel called to vance as he showed signs of interfering he won't fight if he did i think i could almost forgive him but i can't see him pummeled vance objected if he would only stand up, it wouldn't seem so brutal. The blood was streaming from his nose and from a slight cut over one eye when Corliss sprang between. He attempted to hold the two men apart, but pressing too hard against the truculent individual overbalanced him and threw him to the floor. Every man has friends in a barroom fight, and before Vance knew what was taking place he was staggered by a blow from a chum of the man he had downed. Del Bishop, who had edged in, let drive promptly at the man who had attacked his employer, and the fight became general. The crowd took sides on the moment and went at it. Colonel Trethaway forgot that the heats of life had passed, and swinging a three-legged stool danced nimbly into the fray. A couple of mounted police on liberty joined him, and with half a dozen others safeguarded the man with the wolfskin cap. Fierce though it was, and noisy, it was purely a local disturbance. At the far end of the bar the barkeeper still dispensed drinks, and in the next room the music was on and the dancers afoot. The gamblers continued their play, and at only the near tables did they evince any interest in the affair. "'Knock him down and drag him out,' Del Bishop grinned as he fought for a brief space shoulder-to-shoulder with Corliss. Corliss grinned back, met the rush of a stalwart dog-driver with a clinch, and came down on top of him among the stamping feet. He was drawn close and felt the fellow's teeth sinking into his ear. Like a flash, he surveyed his whole future and saw himself going one-eared through life, and in the same dash, as though inspired, his thumbs flew to the man's eyes and pressed heavily on the balls. Men fell over him and trampled upon him, but it all seemed very dim and far away." He only knew as he pressed with his thumbs that the man's teeth wavered reluctantly. He added a little pressure, a little more, and the man would have been eyeless, and the teeth slackened and slipped their grip. After that, as he crawled out of the fringe of the melee and came to his feet by the side of the bar, all distaste for fighting left him. He had found that he was very much like other men after all, and the imminent loss of part of his anatomy had scraped off twenty years of culture. Gambling without stakes is an insipid amusement, and Corliss discovered, likewise, that the warm blood which rises from hygienic gymnasium work is something quite different from that which pounds hotly along when thew matches thew, and flesh impacts on flesh, and the stake is life and limb. As he dragged himself to his feet by means of the bar rail, he saw a man in a squirrel-skin parka lift a beer mug to hurl at Trethaway a couple of paces off and the fingers, which were more used to test tubes and watercolors, doubled into a hard fist and smoked the mug-thrower cleanly on the point of the jaw. The man merely dropped the glass and himself on the floor. Vance was dazed for the moment, then he realized that he had knocked the man unconscious, the first in his life, and a pang of delight thrilled through him. Colonel Trethaway thanked him with a look and shouted, "'Get on the outside! Work to the door, Corliss, work to the door!' quite a struggle took place before the storm doors could be thrown open but the colonel still attached to the three-legged stool effectually dissipated the opposition and the opera house disgorged its turbulent contents into the street this accomplished hostilities ceased after the manner of such fights and the crowd scattered the two policemen went back to keep order accompanied by the rest of the allies while corliss and the colonel followed by the wolfskin cap and del bishop proceeded up the street blood and sweat blood and sweat colonel trethaway exulted talk about putting the vim into one why i'm twenty years younger if i'm a day corliss your hand i congratulate you i do i heartily do candidly i didn't think it was in you you're a surprise sir a surprise and a surprise to myself corliss answered the reaction had set in and he was feeling sick and faint and you also are a surprise the way you handled that stool yes now i flatter myself i did fairly well with it did you see well look at that he held up the weapon in question still tightly clutched and joined in the laugh against himself whom have i to thank gentlemen they had come to a pause at the corner and the man they had rescued was holding out his hand my name is st vincent he went on and-what name del bishop queried with sudden interest st vincent gregory st vincent bishop's fists shot out and gregory st vincent pitched heavily into the snow the colonel instinctively raised the stool then helped corliss to hold the pocket miner back are you crazy man vance demanded the skunk i wish i'd hit him harder was the response then oh that's all right let go of me i won't hit him again let go of me i'm going home good night as they helped st vincent to his feet vance could have sworn he heard the colonel giggling and he confessed to it later as he explained. It was so curious and unexpected, but he made amends by taking it upon himself to see St. Vincent home. "'But why did you hit him?' Corliss asked unavailingly for the fourth time after he had got into his cabin. "'The mean growling skunk,' the pocket-miner gritted in his blankets. "'What do you stop me for, anyway? I wish I'd hit him twice as hard.' End of chapter 11, read by Don W. Jenkins, Rancho San Diego, California, com